Tonight I'm happy to have Father Bob Lacey uh, t- talking with us about Hilaire Belloc. Uh, the title that Father and I worked out was Things Belockian, uh, Pubs, Popes, and Politics. I think I got that right. Father Bob uh, was just ordained this summer for the diocese. Uh, he is the associate pastor at St. Mary's Church in Aberdeen and uh, also works at the Newman Center there as well. So please help me welcome Father Bob Lacey. Why don't we begin in prayer? Bow our heads for a moment of silence. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the manifest wisdom and witness of your disciples. Help us to learn from the example of Hilary Belloc about living vibrant Christian lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Hilaire Belloc had many dimensions to his life. Prominent among them was his dimension, as an Englishman, of serving in the Parliament. But he didn't seem to fit in too well. And so for one of his opening speeches, as a candidate for Parliament, in his county of Salford, he began this way. Gentlemen, I am a Catholic. As far as it is possible, I go to Mass every day. As far as is possible, I get down on my knees and I tell these beads every day. If you reject me on account of my religion, I shall thank God that he has spared me the indignity of being your representative. And it makes it all the more ironic that in the year that he was elected, early 1900s, that he was in the minority as a Catholic. He was in the minority for his positions. And yet he won. And I'd like to back up to get us a little background of his life, or biography, and then talk a little bit as we look at his Catholic life to see how his faith was kind of the lens or the prism through which all of his activity was directed. And I want to do this through a cross-section of his stance on pubs and politics. Hilaire Belloc does not have a very English name. He was born to a French father and claimed ancestry to Napoleon. And he was also born of an English mother, a woman who didn't happen to be Catholic prior to marriage, and who later became very well known in her own right. He had two sisters, and this began his kind of basis. 
He grew up living between France and England, sharing his time somewhat between the two places. This really did begin his life as a traveler. Hilaire Belloc was known for uh, speaking as a lecturer, even late into life, in America, in France, and all over the European continent. He was a journalist. He was a member of parliament. He was a father. He was a pub goer. And he also served in the military as a soldier. And it seems appropriate to discuss someone like this on Veterans Day and also on the feast of St. Martin of Tours, also a soldier. Hilaire Belloc did end up living in Sussex, England. Now, if I had a map of England, you would see it laid out, and in the very bottom corner, on the right-hand side, would be Sussex, right next to the water. Beautiful land bordering the sea and filled with hills. And this happens to fill up much of his literary career. But his career in, in literature began very early in life. They said he was very precocious. He learned a great deal even at a young, young age. By something like age 11, he was reciting whole poems in Latin, something we find now to be difficult at age 21. He was in the military. Uh, he served as a journalist, going hither and thither. He didn't serve on the lines, but he just wrote about it. And he served a great capacity in that regard. He went to Oxford after his military life. And there he gained the presidency of the Oxford Union. No small feat if you know about Oxford. In fact, he got up after two of the great rhetoricians had got done with their oratory. And he, they said, does anyone have anything else to say? And everyone was silent. And then this young lone man walked up. And as everyone was turning away to walk, within the first sentence, they had stopped. Within the second sentence, they had turned around. And within the third sentence, they were sitting down, captivated by his learning, by his wit, by his irony, and by his obvious enthusiasm. He was a married man, had four children. And in fact, I would love to tell you about the journey he took in pursuing his wife all the way to California, journeying across America on train, it seems, and then after being rejected by his future wife, walking all the way back to pick up his tickets back in New York and make his way home. He ended up settling, after a long time, in London at Kingsland, in Slindon, in Sussex. Some say that his life, and the vibrancy of his life, the way he lived, as one person said, he did not just show 
wore his heart on his sleeve. It was as if his heart was so big that he wore it on his waistcoat. Quite a large capacity of a man. And some credit that in no large part, or no small part, his role in bringing about the conversions to Catholicism in England during the 1900s was due to him. Some 12,000 a year in the 1900s came Catholic. Now, let me share you a quote. And this day might be filled with a lot of quotes. But this one, as so many of Belloc's are, is quite replete. And it bears a little read. He says about the solidity of his Catholicism. Because it's kind of his concept of his Catholic faith. He says, The Catholic Church is a thing of which a man never despairs or is ashamed. Faith goes and comes. Not as the decayed world about us pretends with certain ways of intelligence, but as our ardor in the service of God, our chastity, our love of God and his creation, our fighting of our special sins goes and comes. Faith goes and comes. You think it gone for you forever. You go to Mass, but think, you think it gone. Then in a miraculous moment, it returns. In early manhood, one wonders at this. In maturity, one laughs at such vicissitudes. But the church is permanent. You know what our Lord said. He said, I have conquered the world with every necessity, with every apparition of tangible human and positive truth. The faith returns triumphant. By that, believe me, the world has been saved. All that great scheme is not a mist or a growth, but a thing outside ourselves and time. For Belloc, it was permanent. There is no wavering. There is a solidity, a rock-solid basis to Catholicism. And so it should be the same for us. And this did influence how he spoke about pubs and the Pope. Because during his time in Parliament, there was a temperance movement. It kind of contrast to a, a teetotalism, where one just drinks and drinks and drinks. And Belloc had the distinct opponent, who happened to be a J. Greville Groves of the brewing company, Groves and Whitenall, having some hundred pubs in his area. And so his opponent was quite stiff, quite fierce, and they would ridicule him. And he said one time, French is my heart, loyal and sincere, is and shall be my love of English beer. He, in his irony and his wit, could get quite lyrical, as we just saw. And one night in Parliament, he confessed that 
it is rare that there's not a night goes by that he doesn't have one or two pints of beer. And he said, by saying this, I have hopelessly offended all the teetotalers of my constituency. And there are eight of them. (laughs) Ale, beer, and burgundy played a very large role in his life. Some might accuse him of being a drunk. And at times, he may have even admitted to going to excess. But he fought it in his life. He fought to remain moderate. As St. Thomas Aquinas says, drink to the point of hilarity. So even in St. Thomas, our angelic doctor says there is a virtue in restraining oneself and being moderate in your consumption. So those of you who are pulling down your Coors Light and your Bud Light (laughs) and whatever other fine cereal malt beverages you have, don't be afraid. You're in good company. Yes. As Chesterton said, one of Belloc's fine companions, he says, there is nothing wrong between a pint, a pint, a pint, a pipe, and the Pope. So, if you have any one of those indulgences, you're in good hands with some Englishmen from way old. But Belloc fought this. Any kind of, oh, excess in his life. And he said, one time during Lent, when he was in Parliament, Parliament, which happened to be for him, a great burden at some times because he seemed to witness an insincerity and hypocrisy that was exuded amongst some of the parliamentarians of the membership. And so during one of these times, he said, during Lent, he said, I give up my drinking and I switch from my ale to ginger ale. And he says, I have now gone through 36 hours of this ordeal. And a very interesting and curious it is. The mind and the body sink to a lower plane and become fit for contemplation rather than action. The sense of humor is also weakened. And so he wrote these during Holy Week, that main festal time of our Catholic and Christian faith. And he, he said it was weakened. Yet, it was one of the most productive times for him. And he continued to write satirical novels and witty essays and all things full of irony and Paradox, as our Christian and Catholic faith is so full of. So one would say that even in Belloc's weakened sense, his humor was even farther above ours and the way he used that in praise of his faith continued to grow unabashedly. 
Even the titles of his essays, which he was prolific in producing, even during his time in Parliament, bear somewhat of his wit and of his humor. He had one set of essays called On Nothing. And then another set called On Everything. Those in 1908 and 1909. And then two more in 1910. On Anything and on something. <laughs> he continued to get lambasted, however, for being Catholic and English and French. And so someone said that he was among the quintessential Englishmen. One, English he seemed to be, but also French. English to the fact that he lived in the most English of places. Sussex. Loved the most English of drinks, ale. And had the most English of companions, G.K. Chesterton. And so I want to share one of his compositions, shall we say. This is called the West Sussex Drinking Song. And for those of you who will listen to me later, I did pull this off the internet and it is available <laughs> by the very title I have listed. He said, they sell good beer at Hazelmere and under Guilford Hill at Little Cowfold, as I've been told, a beggar may drink his fill. There is good brew in Amberley too and by the bridge also. But the swipes they take in at Washington Inn is the very best beer I know, the very best beer I know. With my here it goes, there it goes, all the fun's before us. The tipple's aboard and the night is young, the door is ajar and the barrel is sprung. I'm singing the best song ever was sung, and it has a rousing chorus. If I were what I never could be, the master or the squire, if you gave me the hundred, from here to the sea, then all my crops should be barley and hops. And should my harvest fail, I'd sell every good root of mine acres, I would, for a bellyful of good ale. A bellyful of good ale. And that is the quintessential humor of Belloc. Just captivating engaging, full of life. And it stems from his deep faith, which bears fruit in joy. And that's what he possessed. One man who met him, a certain Rupert Brooker, just kind of enamored of Hilaire Bach, as so many youth were during his time, said that Hilaire came and read a paper and talked and drank beer, all in great measure. He was vastly entertaining. Walked back one mile. And my mentor was wonderfully drunk and talked all the way. I want to close this with a little quote of Arnold Lunn about the effects that alcohol, and the persuasion of Belloc 
had had on him. He said, Belloc's aggressive Catholicism in this, as in his other books, alternately irritated and attracted me. And then he goes on to say, as an agnostic, talking to Belloc, the Catholic, he had bought a book of Belloc's verse from a Blackwell bookshop in Oxford, England, and he had taken it with himself to a friend, and they went to dine. And he said, over the port, we took it in turns to read and declaim Belloc's poems. And the effect of poetry in port was exhilarating. We were particularly pleased with the poem that began, remote and ineffectual dawn, that dared attack my Chesterton. After we had read this poem to each other more than once, it occurred to me that the poem should be recited without further delay to a don in my own college, Bella Leo, who had spoken disparagingly of Chesterton and who might, for all I knew, be the don who had provoked Belloc. I therefore returned to Bella and serenaded the don under his windows. And it might have been better for me had he been remote and ineffectual. So far from being remote, he was very much on the spot. Somewhat chastened by our interview, I wrote to Belloc the next day to describe the effect of his poetry. Belloc was delighted by what he saw, the subversive effect he had on his old college. And he wrote back, and he said, this as as it should be and warms my heart. Verse is intended to provoke that sort of effect. Notably in Baolio, when in my time, we read it and wrote it continually. And when it seemed insufficient, added music to it. And when that failed, drink. <laughs> A very creative mind was Belloc's. And this very creative mind he used for the talent that he could give towards his fellow neighbors, his fellow brethren in England, to share with them his passion for Catholicism, for his life and love of this life. And this stemmed over into his life in Parliament and even beyond, into what he called distributism, which is um, a just distribution of the world's goods with a wide distribution of property. That's really the concept of distributism that Belloc championed along with Chesterton. But he didn't get this just out of thin air. Belloc was an admirer of popes and of theologians of the church, of which he was not one. During his time, he witnessed several papacies. Um, he was born during the papacy of Pius IX, who championed um, the end of modernism, whose one battle cry might have been pro ecclesia contra mundum, or for the church against the world. And that was kind of Belloc's cry as well, for the church, no matter what the world said. Also, he witnessed Leo XIII, 
with his encyclical Rerum Novarum, which is on the condition of workers. He witnessed also and visited both of those men, um, excuse me, Leo XIII and Pius X, who he actually walked all the way to Rome to visit. He recounts this in one of his uh, more famous novels, The Path to Rome, which champions Catholicism and one's conversion and kind of a whole interior spiritual life uh, being directed towards Rome. These three popes, that is Pius IX, Leo XIII, and Pius X, brought up what was to become in germ the principle of subsidiarity, which is essentially um, that large communities should not interfere in the interactions of smaller communities. And he wrote a poem at the close now that gets annoying, of one of a discussion. Because at this discussion, his good friend G.K. Chesterton and a then antagonistic Russell Shaw were taking both sides of kind of the principle of what McCoy saw called industrialization. And he was asked to sum it up. And so he did so with a poem, and he says... I was told that when I accepted this onerous office that I was to sum up, I should do nothing of the sort. In a very few years from now, this debate, this debate that is over industrialization will be antiquated. I will now recite to you a poem. Our civilization is built upon coal. Let us chant in rotation. Our civilization, that lump of damnation, Without any soul, our civilization is built on coal. In a very few years, it will float upon oil. Then give three hearty cheers. In a very few years, we shall mop up our tears and have done with our toil. In a very few years, it will float upon oil. He saw the destructiveness of what was happening with the, the Industrial Revolution within England, especially during the pre-World War I times. Some have called him prophetic in the way that he anticipated certain lines that society were, taken, were taking. And he got all these from his Catholic faith and listening to what the popes were saying. John Paul II, in centesimus annus, or a hundred years after the production of On the Condition of Workers, published by Leo XIII, that pope that Belloc held in such high regard, he said, the state must contrib contribute to the achievement of these goals, both directly and indirectly. Indirectly as according to the principle of subsidiarity, by creating favorable conditions for the free exercise of economic activity, which will lead to abundant opportunities for employment, and sources of wealth. Directly, 
and according to the same principle of solidarity, by defending the weakest, by placing certain limits on the autonomy of the parties who determine working conditions, and by ensuring, in every case, the necessary minimum support for the unemployed worker. Belloc noticed what was happening, that in all of England, people were being drawn into the cities, out of the countryside, which he loved and endearly, and was so endeared to him, and in some ways became slaved to that industry that was churning out at such great number, large production, using, as he said in his poem, much coal, much coal and much oil. Because he saw of the detrimental effects that was having on people, on the human person, which is what all of our Catholic social teaching has always been on. The human person is first, not the production. The human person is not some robot, not some gear in the machine of productivity, but the center of it, the source, and the whole reason for it. And so Belloc saw that in some ways these seem to be in contradiction to one another. And he said, when you have reconciled these two things, I mean the high stoicism of the republic and the humility of the church, for then they can coexist, then you have the perfect state. He's saying that our faith and our morals have to inform our society. In fact, they should be the basis of our society. And all society can grow, can flower, can be fruitful without having a basis on the human person and on the family, which is the very foundation, the very cell of that society. I want to pull out one quote from our catechism. And he said, uh, the principle of subsidiarity, this is number 1885, is opposed to all forms of collectivism. It sets limits for state intervention. It aims at harmonizing the relationships between individuals and societies. It tends toward the establishment of true international order. And it says in the paragraph before this, that the way God acts in the world, which bears witness to the great regard for human freedom, should inspire the wisdom of those who govern human communities. This was Belloc's kind of modus operandi, his mode of operation, he said, about big business, which he brought up in Parliament, and everyone hated him in Parliament. Well, very nearly. He made some friends, but for the most part, a lot of enemies. Because, well, he was his own man. He thought for himself, and he let his faith guide his operation. And so he spoke about big business that was happening in England, and especially about the mining operations that were occurring in Africa, and about the Chinese labor that was being imported 
into there. And he didn't like it. And one quote from him kind of sums this up. He said, uh, in Parliament, he said that the shortage of labor used by mine owners to justify the importation of Chinese laborers had been deliberately created by the forced lowering of wages. It was nothing less than a cynical attempt to undercut the wages of native laborers. And going on, he was also concerned with the way that Chinese laborers were being treated, asking in Parliament were the rumors that they were being routinely flogged were true. So you can imagine for someone to bring this up in the middle of Parliament, as if any of our senators or representatives were to bring this up in the middle of Congress, whether the House or the Senate, how they would be received and how long their constituencies would re-elect them to office. Probably not too long. I'm going to end soon. But I, being enamored of Belloc, I must include just a little bit more of him. Because what he says and what I'm about to read captures the principles that he was expounding. And this was on that debate on industry. He says, I do not know how many years, five, 10, 20, that this debate will be as antiquated as Quinolans are. I'm surprised that neither of the two speakers, Chesterton and Belloc, pointed out that one of three things is going to happen. One of three things, not one of two. It is also always one of three things. This industrial civilization, which, thank God, oppresses only the small part of the world in which we are most inextricably bound up, will break down and therefore end from its monstrous wickedness, folly, ineptitude, leading to a restoration of sane, ordinary human affairs, complicated, but based as a whole upon the freedom of its citizens. Or it will break down and lead to nothing but a desert. Or it will lead the mass of men to become contented slaves with a few rich men controlling them. Take your choice. You will all be dead before any of the three things comes off. One of the three things is going to happen. Or a mixture of two. Or possibly a mixture of the three combined. I would ask us as a community to reflect if those words of Belloc do not apply even to our own day. Of what our society has become. Are we free? Do we have our integral human freedom? Or do we feel some ways bound to exercise our roles in society, not as free agents, but as operations within a machine? 
That is my closing thought. Hilaire Belloc, who lived between 1870 and nearly at his 50, 83rd year of age, died in 1953 on the feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, had really kind of a wonderful life. Tragic, though, as he witnessed the death of his son in war and a friend in war. He was witness to both world wars. He was witness to the rise of Nazism. and was probably not aware enough to recognize its fall, for he had um, a disease which really made him decline quite rapidly in his closing years, that even in death, somehow we enjoy his impact on us through his verse, through his essays, through the novels he wrote, through his impact on Parliament and through the witness he gave us in being bold and vibrant in the exercise of our Catholic faith. Whether directly or indirectly, through his activity, later in life, some 12,000 people per year became Catholic. Among them, quite notably, many, many literary giants. Some of these you might not know, others you might. Evelyn Waugh, Graham Greene, um, G.K. Chesterton, his brother Cecil Chesterton, um, Blunt, uh, Arnold Lunn, any of these men, any of these number of people, men and women alike, through his outspokenness, through his boldness, through the vibrancy of his life, said, I have to examine how I live and see if there's not something there that I need to practice. And it made people inquire and question the roots of their own principles. And he did this all with much flair and with much zeal, serving as an inspiration for all of us. One song that has captivated many people, and I think serves as a closing epitaph to his life, is his own song, In Praise of Wine. Now, I managed to print it, and it's two legal sheets worth of composition. I will take a selection. He said, to exalt, enthrone, establish, and defend, to welcome home mankind's mysterious friend, wine, true begetter of all the arts that be, wine, privilege of the completely free, Wine the recorder, wine the sagely strong, wine, bright avenger of the sly dealing wrong. Awake, Alsonian muse, and sing the vineyard song. And now at the end, when from the waste of such long labor done, I too must leave the grape ennobling sun, and like the vineyard worker, take my way down the long shadows of declining day.
Bend on the somber plain my clouded sight, and leave the mountain to the advancing night. Come to the term of all that was mine own, with nothingness before me and alone. Then to what hope of answer shall I turn? Comrade, commander, whom I dared not earn. What said you then to trembling friends and Jew? A moment, and I drink it with you, new. But in my father's kingdom, so my friend, let not your cup desert me in the end. But when the hour of mine adventures near, just and benign, let my golden youth appear, bearing a chalice open, golden, wide, with benediction graven on its side. So touch my dying lip, so bridge that deep, so pledge my waking from the gift of sleep. And sacramental, raise me the divine, strong brother in God, and last companion, wine. Thank you very much for your attention. At this time, I welcome any questions or comments or any such matter that you care to raise. If we could, uh, we're ready with our microphones, so don't be bashful. Yes, Monsignor McEnany, if you could hold a moment. Do the, uh, do the Anglicans of today have much interest in Belloc's writings? Could you repeat that again? Do the Anglicans of today in England have much interest in Belloc's writings? That is a question that I am unsure of as to whether the Anglicans of today have much interest in Belloc's writings. For those who are literate, uh, for those who um, are quite pursuant of literature, yes, they will. As for any English speaking and reading um, person, Belloc's writings do have much impact. Some of his um, personally most enjoyed prose has actually passed into the channels of history. Um, but as to the Anglicans, I'm not sure. Is there anyone else? Belloc was, in some ways, a very confusing and interesting man all at once. So, um, does anyone have any questions on his kind of idea of subsidiarity, how that might apply to our day, or um, the role of using alcohol, maybe? In, in the back. You said uh, Father Bellick was a, a uh, promoter of equal distribution of wealth and land. In what way? Almost like communism type, where everything is distributed equally between everyone and the government controls everything? Uh-huh. Okay. Or you, you're, you're phrasing that sentence as to is to promote another possibility? Well, it just, 
I don't understand why he would want everything equally distributed because that kind of kills the free market idea. I mean, I'm learning a lot about this kind of stuff in high school, so. Sure. And it just rings, it rings like communism, which I don't think anyone really likes. So I don't know why that was such a good idea to him besides the fact that he created everyone equal so there wouldn't be any disputes. Now, the quote that I have of his is to have a wide distribution of property. Belloc would have said more along the lines of, And I, I did just give that little quote to engage us into his thought that not an equal distribution as one person getting the same as another, but a wide distribution. Uh, very different than an equal distribution. Now, in some of his earlier writings, he did... Uh, one might call toy with or engage the idea of socialism. But in the end, he saw that even in socialism was not the idea or the ideal that was hoped for, which is that all of it will be controlled equally by each person, by everyone. Um, he saw that it had the danger of a certain elect, powerful few having power over the guidance of the whole uh, society. He actually lambasted, blasted out um, any of these words of explosive um, nature against those people that said that the working class and their principles should be, guided, should be guided by the enlightened few who held power and property. Because, um, and I don't know my English history in that Victorian time well enough to accurately say what was going on, but one thing that did happen was some insider trading, the Marconi scandal, of which Cecil Chesterton actually uh, blew wide open in an um, article in a newspaper saying that the Senate had um, put some money in, or a person in the Senate had benefited greatly from putting his stocks in a certain area because he knew it was going out. Um, in the same way, he also saw that there was a select number of people that were holding, um, in a sense, um, ownership over the whole corporation. And that all the people that they were employing were being treated to serve that production, not to be um, voluntary and active cooperators within that production more machines in the will, more machines um, in the productive effort. Um, a good study of the Industrial Revolution um, in our own country would uh, bring up similar parallels um, to what was happening in England at that time.
and probably anticipating it a little bit. Um, is there any other questions? I might have got off easy. Just a, just a moment while we get our microphone. Okay. Uh, what would you think if he was alive today, Bellon? What do you think his ideas would be about Walmart and these large oil companies? And I think that Belloc would start to apply also um, that same principle of subsidiarity. I had another quote from the Catechism that um, in some ways applied this a little better. The principle of sub subsidiarity, and this is 1883, you'll find it right in the late 1800s of the Catechism, according to which a community of a higher order should not interfere in the internal life, internal life of a community of a lower order, depriving the latter of its functions, but rather should support it in case of need and help coordinate, it, coordinate its activity with the activities of the rest of society always with a view to the common good. So the question you're asking here is whether these large communities, which would be um, some of our large corporations, are head, which are, in a sense, guided by a select few, um, how they are not allowing that they're not serving the smaller community, but rather, in some ways, sublimely or uh, explicitly extorting it to their own benefit. Yeah. Belloc was not one to mince words. In my position, I try to be a little more tactful. <laughs> Taking on his companion Chesterton as more of a person of imitation. I would say that he would give it a very close scrutiny and ask as is his favor towards um, the individual and small societies what effect that large corporations have had in lives of small communities that are remote um, from centers of civilization, what they have, what role they have um, incorrectly played in the diminishment of small downtowns, of high, higher gas prices, and um, in people having to go 100 miles just to get to one of these large centers because no more can small mom and pops support their own just wage of supplying a, a family, of supporting a family. Um, that being said, to take on Belloc, he would probably pull out a double-barrel shotgun and start attacking their very principles. So he would not appreciate them. Uh, yes, no. Middle table. 
Um, what were, if any, Belloc's thoughts on American democracy at the time that he was living? Belloc's thoughts on American democracy, um, let me recall, recall for a moment. Because he did see it during those times, and he was here, let's see, he was born in 1870, was married in his 20s, so right around the turn of the century, uh, late, 19, late 19th century, early 20th century, um, and then returning to lecture back in America, I just read this, that he was not impressed with the way it had gone, that in some ways it seemed more focused on big business rather than on the individual. But you also have to realize that that was the early 1900s. Um, maybe not so applicable today. But the democracy, in principle, I would say he would probably support the democracy that uh, was had in America. Maybe not in its uh, actuality, but kind of certainly in its principle. Uh, yes, in our blue denim. Are you, are you saying then that he would uh, approve of our democracy today? Today? I don't know Belloc well enough to, uh, to state that. He didn't like how Parliament was then. Quint incidentally, he didn't actually support women's suffrage which is a whole other topic, which could probably last a whole, um, a whole other theology on tap. Uh, not for misogynist reasons either, though. Um, so in that respect, he wouldn't support American democracy, that it had equal suffrage, that all could vote. So, but to be cautious, I, I don't know how he, what he would say. I would say that he... His desire for representation um, and the amount of money that's expended on uh, electoral campaigns and how much it begins. I mean, he himself in his election campaigns, he didn't run for a third term because, A, he didn't think that the electorate or the constituency, which he called it, would support him. It had gone from like 900 votes in his county to 300 votes between his two terms. And he didn't think that would be sufficient enough. Um, plus, he just, he just felt kind of helpless or um, like his hands were tied behind his back in Parliament because he just didn't feel like he was getting, anything was happening, nothing was occurring. So I really don't know. I'm not, I don't think he would have been very pleased with it, though. Um, try over here. I happen to know the man in the back, so I might be able to answer his question later. I have an easy question, I guess. Knowing, in my opinion, how young you are and when Mr. Belloc passed away, I'm curious as to what intrigued you. You mentioned you were enamored of him. What got you interested in him? I read a book uh, that Joseph Pierce wrote. What was it called? <laughs> Yeah, paid a lot of attention to the title. Um, literary Catholics, Literary Converts, I think is the title of it. 
And he's writing about some very prominent um, uh, people, literary people, literary giants who became Catholic. And Belloc's role in so many of these was instrumental. Um, through his friendship, through his um, boldness, through his um, candid talk, brought so many of them to questioning a, um, if I could remember his name, I think it was um, Arnold Lunn, who was just straight on uh, rationalism. No God, just rationalism. And he said in a very direct quote, and I, I'm going to misquote him completely, that he said, it takes more faith for you to have your rationalism than it does for me to believe in God. And so the guy was just like, holy smokes, I have to question this. And at the same time, this personality of Belloc just completely captivated the person by his love and his effusion and his generosity and his, oh, I can't pronounce the French, but his joy of life. And that's what captivated him. This person from his agnosticism to becoming Catholic. And it was in so few words, the boldness of Hilaire Belloc, which I find is so instrumental to each of our lives as evangelists of the gospel in each of our own little ways um, to being applicable to my own. So I said, well, that same author, Joseph Pierce, also wrote a book particularly on Hilaire Belloc, so I'm going to read that. And it's kind of part of my own growth as a person and especially as a priest to being well-read. And the English um, literature of that time just seems uh, so enjoyable. So, uh, in the back. In the words of Belloc in society today, I see that younger, younger children, younger kids, even teenagers in college have a disrespect for the elderly, and I also finding that the, in our paper, they talk about how um, games are a good thing, an addiction, and it's okay, and sleeping with your fiance is okay, and things of this sense, what am I or what are we supposed to tactically do to come up with a solution to this? To rephrase your question, um, with Belloc's inspiration and witness, uh, how do we serve as um, evangelists and, in a certain sense, apologists for our Catholic faith among our own peers? Would that be an accurate restatement in some ways? Okay. Um, Belloc never, ever ceased his reading along with his own profusion of writing. He was always a learner. And he was always engaging his Catholic faith ever more integrally, taking it into heart and living it out. So the first response would be, A, find out what your own Catholic faith is. And not just in a sense, the old restatement of the catechism. But 
being able to rephrase um, fornication in terms of the damage it does to the person and the damage it does to the future um, community of life and love that is supposed to be marriage. Being able to rephrase that in your own words, then when you encounter your, your fellow peer, you, you don't have to point the finger and say, you know, what you're doing is wrong and you're going to go straight to hell if you die. Um, our society today does not, I'm not going to say appreciate, but instead of um, engaging you or engaging the person who says that, they blow you off. They say, whatever, you're going to infringe upon my freedom. <laughs> Forget you, I'm going to do my own thing. Rather, we have to come up with kind of like what Benedict XVI has been saying, the kind of whole theme of John Paul II, and say, to be able to rephrase our Catholic faith and our Christian principles in terms so that when we say to someone, you know, I'm really concerned about, um, you could even say it passively, about the way that so many of our peers and you could say this to someone who you think or know is engaged in this immorality and say, I'm concerned about the way our peers just treat this so lightly because, you know, as I see it, it ruins our freedom because we're so attached to the other person and we've let our passions get beyond us and we, we're not able to, to even think straight. We've lost our own true beauty because we've faced it by giving it away. And we've lost our dignity because of this all. And to be able to restate those and any other of those questions in, those, in that format will um, more than likely not only be bold, as Belloc was, not only be evangelistic as he was, but also be very inviting and um, slip in through the cracks of a, of a good solid defense. So I think we're about ready to close up. Why don't we close up with a prayer, thanking God for the witness of so many who have gone before us and asking for their intercession to become more like them. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall world without end. Amen.